A couple of years ago, a CNA Insider featured the Cole family, Eric, his wife, Wei Shi, and their son, Elliot. They were featured on the news because baby Elliot was born blind. Naturally, his mother wondered if she had done anything that could have resulted in this. But their doctors would confirm that the blindness is caused by a particular gene mutation. Every person has two copies of the same gene, if you know your biology. Eric and his wife each carry a healthy copy and a mutated copy of that particular gene in question. Elliot inherited both mutated copies, one from each parent, which resulted in a rare inherited disease which causes vision loss. Since nobody can choose the genes we inherit or pass down, really nobody can be blamed for Elliot's blindness. Inherited diseases are a reminder that human beings are utterly corrupted by original sin, down to the human genome. Because sin is random and chaotic, some of us are more visibly messed up than others for no good reason. Nevertheless, all of us are messed up to a greater or lesser extent. Our gospel passage today assures us that this wholesale corruption of our bodies is not a permanent state of affairs. The healing of a man born blind reminds us that there is a God who has the power to reverse the effects of sin. The question is, how may we receive God's perfect healing? May I suggest to you that the answer, which is also our message for today, is simply believe in Jesus because he worked the works of God. Here are my three points for this sermon. Just, ch- just checking. Is this working? Uh? No. Uh? Okay. Never on, that's why. Sorry, my fault. Okay, before I begin, a few things to note. For ease of communication, I'm going to nickname the hero of our story, Beggar Blind. It's a bit tedious to keep calling him the man born blind, the man who received his sight, blah, blah, blah. So let's just call him Beggar Blind, yeah? Next, this account of the healing of Beggar Blind runs from chapter 9, verse 1, to chapter 10, verse 21. Very long, huh? okay, so no need to hear the second part. You read yourself. So John wrote a narrative masterpiece brimming with theology, metaphors and motifs. We can only look at a few of these today, but you should know that it is a very rich text. We begin with a recurring question in the passage. Then how were your eyes opened? Why then does he now see? How did he open your eyes? Everyone is asking how, because they're astounded by Beggar Blind's newfound sight. Healing of this kind is unheard of. Begelbein tells us, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. He would know. His parents would have tried to find a cure for him when he was young. And when he grew up, he would have sought a miracle for himself. However, history works against them. Healing of this kind was never heard of and may never happen. For this reason, when Jesus was passing by, beggar blind did not throw himself at him and ask for his help. He was resigned to his fate. Jesus had to take the initiative to restore his sight. And the Lord performed the healing in such a way that beggar blind could experience it tangibly and later testify to it confidently. But we were saying, 
The Jews were befuddled by Begoblin's extraordinary healing and were all seeking an explanation. So when they all came together to try the case, his neighbors, the people of Jerusalem and the Pharisees, they came up with a couple of theories. Theory one, this person who can see is not beggar blind. Very sensible start, always establish the identity of the person in question. But this man is beggar blind. People recognize him and he identified himself. Theory two then, beggar blind was not born blind. Uh, logical conjecture. For all we know, he's been faking it so that he can live on charity. But the theory is false. His parents confirm that their son was genuinely blind from birth. Theory three then, beggar blind was not healed. Did they come up with this one? I can throw it in, uh, see whether you're paying attention. Uh, it's not in the text. Obviously, it can't be true anyway, because why would the Jews be astounded if beggar blind still can't see. Since this man is really beggar blind, and beggar blind was really born blind, and beggar blind is no longer blind, you see why this beggar blind thing works. Yeah. <laughs> a possible conclusion would be a miracle has taken place. In fact, some of the Jews believed it was a sign from God, but the majority refused this judgment because they did not want to admit that Jesus is a miracle worker. But since they were unable to dismiss the fact that Jesus did heal this man, they came up with a dastardly explanation. He has a demon. A gracious, divine healing is mistaken as demonic sorcery because of human unbelief. What is a miracle? Augustine says, when God does things contrary to the pattern known and expected by us in nature, we call them great and wondrous works. A more modern definition uh, says, an event that involves the direct and powerful action of God, transcending the ordinary laws of nature and defying common expectations of behavior. Now, theologians have tried to explain miracles. Like those before us, we are also asking how. One theological view suggests that miracles are manifestations of yet unknown laws of nature. According to this view, a miracle is an unusual occurrence which happens when an unusual combination of unusual conditions is met. For instance, beggar blind was healed because among other unknown conditions, he met Jesus at the right place. Both of them were in the mood for healing. The saliva was the right viscosity the ground was the right grind size, the amount was just the right weight, the water was at the right temperature, the timing was spot on. This sounds like brewing coffee, and it's a good analogy. We need to get all the conditions right to brew a miracle. This explanation is easy enough, but since we don't know what we do not know, we can neither confirm nor refute this theory. A second view suggests that miracles break the laws of nature. By the laws of nature, humans develop vision in the womb. Humans do not grow vision after birth. After all, eyesight is not like teeth. According to this view, beggar blind's healing is a freak of nature because his body developed vision in adulthood. 
Nevertheless, this explanation is hard to defend because can we be comfortable with a law-breaking God? Furthermore, Beggar Blind did not describe any sort of change in his eyes. I'm reminded of how painful it was for Harry Potter to regrow bones in his arms. Regrowing bones is a nasty business. But for Beggar Blind, it was only, I went, I wash, I see. The last view we'll look at today is the idea that miracles occur when natural forces are countered by supernatural force. In this view, the laws of nature are not broken, but the sovereign power of God comes in and transforms the situation. Thus, Beggar Blind did not grow vision unnaturally, but Jesus created sight in him supernaturally. This explanation may be unsatisfactory for some people because it still doesn't explain how he sees. We know that the power comes from God, but the method is hidden from us. But perhaps this is the point. The most important question is not how, but who. But why do we want to know how? Can we perform the miracle if we knew how? Can you build a spacecraft if I gave you the blueprints? Why not rather find out who? So that we may seek help from the one with the power. Brothers and sisters, miracles are called signs and wonders in the Bible because they are signs pointing us to a person who has done something wonderful for us. And they make us wonder who this person is to us that he would do such a thing. Miracles are given to draw us to seek this person so that we may believe and receive the greatest miracle of all. As it is written, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you've ever witnessed or personally encountered something out of the ordinary, and that experience has turned you to Jesus, made you seek him, believe in him, and strengthen your faith in him, that is a miracle. Other people may come up with other explanations for it, your own scientific or superstitious mind may try to dismiss it. But I urge you today to repent of such alternative explanations. Believe that Jesus did this miracle for you and trust in him. For our second point, we pick up on the motif of judgment. Indeed, judgment is everywhere in our passage. At the start, the disciples were asking Jesus' judgment about born blindness. The Jews brought beggar blind to the religious authorities for judgment about his healing. During the trial, as it were, the Pharisees declared judgment on both Jesus and beggar blind. And finally, the Pharisees opposed Jesus' judgment of them. When we analyze these judgments one by one, we will find that they are all wrong. Everyone who presumes to know what God thinks of somebody gets refuted. The disciples, for example, they thought that blindness was always a direct consequence of sin. 
Now they think this way because they gather from the scriptures that there is no death without sin, no suffering without iniquity. This classic retributive theology. The disciples also learned from their time with Jesus that people suffer from diseases because of their sins. For instance, after Jesus healed a paralyzed man, Jesus told the man, see you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Therefore, when the disciples encountered beggar blind, they slept on the same judgment, he must have sinned. But they run into a problem. How can a person sin before he's born? Did he kick his mother one too many times in the womb? Tried to kill his twin brother? If beggar blind is not guilty, they must be his parents. Upset, Ezekiel proclaimed, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. Now the disciples are very confused about who's guilty, but still certain that blindness is divine punishment, turn to ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus corrected them saying, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. Sin leads to suffering, but not all suffering is due to sin. The disciples were wrong. The Pharisees didn't judge better. They who are the proud disciples of Moses, who knew the law and practiced the law. Like the disciples, they were wrong about beggar blind. You were born in utter sin, they had said to him. Then they were wrong about Jesus. As it happened, when the Pharisees found out that Jesus was making mud and healing blindness on the Sabbath day, they declared at once, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Even after much debate, they reaffirmed their judgment. We know that this man is a sinner. Only their judgment is also wrong because they have misunderstood the Sabbath law. Now Jesus clarifies what it means in John 7. If on the Sabbath... A man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The interpretation is this. We can work on the Sabbath day if we are working on the other commandments of God. For the Sabbath is not given for us to stop doing God's work, but it is given to prevent us from being enslaved to human work. Accordingly, Jesus is not a law-breaking sinner, even though he did a lot of work on the Sabbath because he was doing the works of God. Various errors of judgment in our passage should alert us to the reality that humans are terrible at judging people. Even if we have all the facts of case, we can be mistaken. Even if we know what ought and ought not to be done, we can misunderstand the laws. And even if we try to learn and imitate another judge, like Jesus, we can misapply his judgments. Since this is the reality, how can I know if I'm a good person or not? How can I know if I'm doing the right thing? How can I know if I'm doing enough right things to be a good person? It's better if we do not judge. Now, we're not saying that we do not judge anything at all. 
Certainly, we must still differentiate between good and evil, holy and wicked thoughts, right and wrong actions. What we're saying is we must not presume to know what God thinks of you and I. See what happened to the arrogantly presumptuous Pharisees who trusted in their own judgment. Are we also blind, they retorted, meaning to say we're not sinners because we're not physically blind. And we're not even spiritually blind because we know God through Moses. To which Jesus replied, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. To paraphrase, if you admitted that you are ignorant of God, you would have an excuse for not believing in me. But since you claim to know God, but don't recognize me, you have no excuse and you remain guilty of unbelief. We should not follow the Pharisees, but instead imitate Paul who says, I do not even judge myself. Like Paul, we should surrender the judgment of people to Jesus who alone proclaims the right judgment of God. And this is the judgment of God that he proclaims. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Which is to say, Jesus has come to divide humankind into two groups. One group of humans will see God face to face in the kingdom, while the other group will never see God. I've been watching the South Korean survival game show, Physical 100. It's a Netflix reality competition series where 100 contestants, men and women in top physical shape, compete in a series of grueling challenges to claim the honor and cash reward as the last one standing. Anyone watching? Don't have, ah. Uh. <laughs> okay, got a few. Yeah, then some level. I got to the episode where fallen contestants go into a revival match. Sorry, spoiler. And those who survive the revival match receive the chance to get back into the game. And later, the host revealed that this would be the only revival match in the entire show. Sorry, more spoiler. Uh, as I was writing this sermon in between watching this show, or is it I was watching the show in between writing this sermon, but you should know I was writing this sermon primarily, it dawned on me that judgment, the judgment that Jesus brings is like a revival match. Humankind, 100%, has fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone's out of the game. There are no survivors. Then Jesus comes along and proclaims a revival match. All of us who are condemned to die has a second chance at life. But do note, that there is only one revival match. Now we're all interested to know what the revival challenge is. It's nothing epic, no need for brain or muscles. Just a simple question you answer from your heart. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Like miracles, the judgment of God is proclaimed so that we may believe in Jesus and not miss out on the chance of revival. Therefore, I also urge you today to repent of your own standards and strivings for human goodness, which leads to nothing, but believe in his judgment, 
and live. For our final point, we want to affirm that Jesus is sent from God. While the Jews declared that Jesus is a sinner and that he healed with demonic power, some had their doubts. Some of the Pharisees asked, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Others said, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And beggar blind concluded for himself, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. But since we've just learned earlier that humans are terrible at judging people, we shall not believe them, but seek a more credible witness. And this is none other than Jesus himself, who, foreseeing the debate that will come about because of this healing, has already built in the definitive answer from the very beginning. To appreciate his foresight, we must look at how this healing is different from the rest. In the interest of time, we will only compare this with two other spittle miracles in the Bible, miracles involving spit. The first one is from Mark chapter 7, where Jesus heals a man who is deaf and mute. Observe the process. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he signed and said to him, Epapha, that is, be open. And his ears were open, his tongue released, and he spoke plainly. The other one is from Mark chapter 8, where Jesus heals a man in Bethsaida. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out to the village. And when he has spit on his eyes, assuming two times, pui pui, and let his, <laughs> laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Now compare these with the healing of beggar blind. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. Can you spot the most important difference between these three? Spit on the floor, not on the ice. Hmm. <laughs> Only beggar blind was commanded to do something. Go and wash in a specific pool. The pool called Siloam, which means sand. Now, in ancient Jerusalem, their only source of living water is the Gihon Spring in the Kidron Valley. King Hezekiah dug a 500-meter tunnel to channel water from this spring into the city. Since the water is sent into Jerusalem in this way, they named the reservoir at the end of Hezekiah's tunnel Siloam Pool. John made special note of the meaning of Siloam to alert us to Jesus' metaphorical intent, which is this. Jesus commanded beggar blind to complete his healing at the, pool of, at the waters sent into Jerusalem so that we may know that complete healing comes from the one sent to Jerusalem to die, namely, Jesus Christ. Thus, from the very beginning, Jesus has already told us that he is sent from God. And we have seen from our passage 
that he was sent to work the works of God, the work of miracle, the work of judgment, the work of bringing us to faith. Allow me to conclude. Humans, you and I, suffer from genetic mutations, bodily defects, physical diseases, and eventually deterioration and death, largely due to original sin. Our blindness to the existence of God can make us resign to our fate, be angry with the world, or live in dark despair. But the word of God reminds us that God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to proclaim the power of God, to reverse, to undo, to cancel the effects of sin. Faith in him leads to perfect healing. If not now, certainly in the life to come. Whatever that did not develop properly or mutated will be recreated in perfection. Whatever had to be surgically removed or need replacement will be returned to you. Whatever broke down, worn out, turned flabby will be restored and never go bad again. And though I'm not sure if you want a physical 100 body, we may all get a chance at it. All these promises are available to us in Christ, will you open your eyes and believe? The living Jesus is wonderful, isn't it? No? And therefore we believe and we are able, therefore, now to proclaim who we 